Welcome to Hallowed Ground Storycast. I'm Alan. And I'm Anya, and this episode is about a movie that blows me away every time I watch it, the German spy drama, The Lives of Others. It'll be our secret. You can keep a secret, right? So before we get started today, I just want to apologize a little bit for our podcast being late and mention that the reason why it's late is because we've been working on another project with a friend of ours, Kate, called Measures of Truth about the Philip Pullman novel The Golden Compass uh, in anticipation of the new television series called His Dark Materials. Um, So if you're interested, definitely check that out. And I also just wanted to highlight that The Lives of Others, uh, the movie we're talking about today in this episode, is available on American Netflix, which almost never happens. We usually are choosing shit that's like so weird and hard to find. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I was honestly shocked when I saw that it was on Netflix. Um, But yeah, so like we're typically not uh, super spoiler sensitive. And we try to make these podcasts so that you can enjoy them even if you haven't watched the thing. Um, But this movie is one where... I think there's a lot of pleasure in kind of like seeing things unfold um, without necessarily knowing what's going to happen up front. So if you have American Netflix um, and you think you would enjoy that, we would recommend turning off the podcast, taking the time to watch the movie and then coming back. For everyone who's decided not to stop and go watch the movie... (laughs) Um, The Lives of Others is set in 1984, five years before the fall of the Berlin Wall. A captain in the East German spy agency, the Stasi, uh, begins spying on a famous playwright and his actress girlfriend, Um, but his loyalties begin to waver as he gets to know his subjects and realizes that the operation was initiated by a jealous government official with affections for the actress. After the playwright's friend, a blacklisted director, commit suicide, the playwright begins writing a subversive article for the West about conditions in East Germany. The spy chooses to cover for the playwright and his friends rather than report them. After the article is published, the spy tries but cannot stop the rest of the Stasi coming after the playwright through his girlfriend. She also commits suicide after revealing a secret during an interrogation, not knowing that the spy has covered for them. The spy is demoted to a menial job where he lives out the rest of the East German Republic. After the Berlin Wall falls, the former headquarters of the Stasi are turned into a museum and memorial, and the playwright goes to see his file after being surprised to find out that he was under surveillance the whole time. He realizes that the spy was covering for him and dedicates his next book to him. The Lives of Others was released in 2006. It was written and directed by Florian Henkel von Donnersmark and is his first feature film. It cost $2 million to make and grossed $77 million worldwide. It won the 2006 Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, as well as seven Deutsche Filmpreis Awards, including those for Best Film, Best Director, Best Screenplay, Best Actor, and Best Supporting Actor. Although it was generally well-received, some people, including the director of the Memorial to Stasi Victims, objected to the way that the Stasi captain was humanized and depicted as a hero, especially given that it was not based on a real character, uh, unlike, say, Schindler in Schindler's List, which um, it was kind of compared to hypothetically. Um, So they actually did not get permission to film at the real Stasi prison slash memorial um, for that reason. And other people have noted that it would have been impossible for the story to take place 
um, because Stasi officers always worked in teams and were themselves under surveillance by other Stasi members. So while it's a very well-regarded film, it uh, is firmly in the realm of fiction. Mm, The movie kind of goes out of its way to be like, this is an operation that comes out of corruption and like an off the books kind of a thing, even though it's on the books. That guy wants him to do this so that he can like get rid of that, you know, writer and get the girl. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, like it wasn't a typical operation. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you got to when you're writing a story, you got to like do what's best for the story and not always be historically accurate, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it necessarily like negates how much I love the movie at all. It just was something I thought worth mentioning. No, it's totally worth mentioning. Yeah, you're right. So I honestly don't remember like the circumstances under which I first watched this movie. But I do remember that it completely blew me away the first time and has uh, similarly done so each time that I've rewatched it. My favorite thing about the movie is how clear but also subtle it is. Like, everything is text. It's not subtext or open to interpretation. But so Mm -hmm. much of what's happening is being communicated by putting different scenes in context with each other and by keeping track of, like, very small details across the movie. So um, it's a movie that really, I think, respects its audience and rewards attention to detail. And almost every scene is doing multiple things in terms of relating to both, like, plot and theme. It feels so effortless and natural as you're watching, and, like, the two hours and 20 minutes completely fly by. But it's actually a work of precision clockwork. Um, It almost functions like a mystery in terms of keeping track of like everyone's motivations and what's happening as the movie goes on. Yeah. That German engineering, man. Yeah. (laughs) They they know what they're doing. No, I totally agree with you. I only watched it um, for the podcast. That's the first time I hadn't even heard of it before you mentioned it. I think it's more than being like well written. It's like really made to be a film. All of the creators clearly like understand the strengths of that medium and like maximize it in exactly the way that you're talking about, where they're like visually comparing scenes to each other. Like so much is transmitted by the body language of the actors themselves. And then the way that the sets transmit a lot of information Mm -hmm. about the people who live in them. And then also like the props or the, the kind of technology, like the cars that are in the street as well as like these long moments of silence where you're just watching a character who might not have a whole lot on their face going on, but like you're just like riveted to it, uh, or at least I was. Yeah. It's not like a writerly movie because like the dialogue is usually ironic with the characters like saying the opposite of what their body or face is signaling. Mm-hmm. And so like to me that that just says that like the screenwriter, the director was like really confident about being able to pull this off in a visual medium and not like relying on, you know, kind of snappy dialogue or stuff like that. Yeah. And when I think that whole thing about the dialogue being ironic and characters saying the opposite of what they mean, 
I think that's goes a long way towards communicating like what it's like to be in an authoritarian state Mm -hmm. and like how Mm -hmm. nothing is really what it seems and how like the truth is always obfuscated. Yeah, they're like, we live in the socialist state. And it's like, you live in a fascist state. (laughs) (laughs) Like, Nothing is what whatever it says it is. It's like the opposite of that. Yeah, I mean, even the the name of the country, right? It's like the Democratic German Republic. Yeah. But it's yeah. like, mm, not that democratic. <laughs> it's always like that in every like fascist state. It's yeah. always like the Republic of China. And it's like, uh, uh, no. So typically when we do these podcasts, we just kind of like write up some general notes with ideas that we want to talk about. Um, and this is the first movie that we've done where I actually like wrote out detailed plot notes scene by scene of like everything that was happening in the movie because... I felt like I kind of needed to <laughs> almost to, to make sure that I noticed everything that the film wanted me to notice. It was super helpful to me when I was making <laughs> my notes in the doc. I, w- I kept scrolling through it. I was like, okay, what happens next? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That cool thing. So Yeah. So thanks. <laughs> yeah. And so I think maybe we can just start out at the beginning because that opening scene is doing so much work to really set up the movie. It's really interesting because it's like this framed kind of thing. It's not exactly what you think it is when when you're watching it at first, where it begins like with an interrogation, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not actually an interrogation because what we're doing is like seeing the interrogation as like a memory, but it's a recording that's being played for a class that's learning from the interrogation. So for me, by setting up the interrogation as a teaching moment where he's like explaining everything that he's doing as he's doing it, it's establishing that the spy, um, whose name is Weisler, is like really fucking good at his job Mm -hmm. and a true Mm -hmm. believer and also not overly empathetic or sentimental towards like the people who he's basically like torturing And I think that's really important because otherwise his turn where he like betrays the Stasi and is protecting the people who he's supposed to be spying on isn't as powerful. It's not an arc. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Yeah. And so and so the scene is so good at like really firmly establishing all of those things. I mean, the whole movie is basically about his character arc and his undoing and like losing his status and his rank. And even the first line of dialogue, so it's embedded in the memory, not in the classroom. The first line of dialogue is address him as captain. And it's like highlighting his rank. Um, Mm, And at mm -hmm. the end, we see him, you know, as like a menial laborer in the the letter processing department. And then as like a mail carrier, you know, not high status jobs. But the first time we see him, he's like in his full military regalia. Yeah, totally in command of everything that's happening, Mm -hmm. both in and out of the frame. Like he's controlling the other person and he's like in Mm -hmm. charge of all the students and stuff and literally like turning on and off the recording. So he's like absolutely in control and then yeah at the end he's like a nobody so that's a really good point and i'm not sure if you noticed this but they make a big deal about him asking the person who he's interrogating to put his hands beneath his thighs um to get the sample for the dogs Mm -hmm. and then two hours later whatever when we see the minister of culture grubitz interrogating krista maria 
there's like a lingering camera shot on her hands, like at the chair. And it shows that Grubitz is actually really bad at his job. Like he's not following the protocol. Um, He's not having her collect a scent sample for the dogs. Right. Yeah. In that scene, I was like, so is he like trying to let her feel better about this? Because he's not following the procedure. But then I was like, she wouldn't know about that. So it wouldn't make her feel better. So like, no, he's he's bad at his job. Yeah, I think it's just showing that he's bad at his job. (laughs) It really like assumes that you're picking all that stuff up Mm -hmm. and then it rewards you for doing that. Like the movie never does anything that's not um, paid off later, really. Yeah. I think the way that it opens too with Weissler is important in this way that Alfred Hitchcock used to talk about when, you know, if you open with a burglar in a house, like going through the house and like tossing open drawers. And that's like a bad person, you know, somebody that we're not supposed to sympathize with. But then you you have like the car lights go through the window behind him. And then you get this stab of anxiety as that happens. And you're like, hurry up, man, you're about to get caught. And suddenly like you're invested in this bad person. And I feel like that's something that the movie does starting us off with Weissler instead of with Draymond, Mm -hmm. who would be way more sympathetic, you know, in any other context. But we have to care about Weissler on a certain level in order to go on this arc with him. Yeah, Draymond being the playwright. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The guy he's surveilling. They're kind of like dual protagonists that play off each other a little bit. Um, I think they both have um, kind of like similar arcs where they start off as true believers of socialism and of the state, even though they kind of come at that belief in different ways. Draymond, the playwright, is an optimist, and so he kind of believes in socialism, you know, for all of the high-minded philosophical reasons. reasons. Um, Whereas, you know, you get the feeling that Weissler is like, hasn't ever really considered philosophy that much. He's just good at his job and doing what he does and like fully bought into the the state security apparatus. Um, mm-hmm. And then they, they both arc away from that on kind of like parallel tracks. It's an interesting choice to have Weissler be the main character and like kind of a controversial choice like we, we talked about before. Mm-hmm. And Draymond mm-hmm. is the secondary one. Yeah, on the one hand, you have people out there in the world, you know, like Putin, who are totally like, you know, into this whole kind of thing. And like, are you teaching people that like, these people can be brought back? But at the same time, like, I think what connects those two characters just within the story is their level of integrity. Mm -hmm. You know, like you see it demonstrated over and over in the story when they're with their peers that both of them like really believe the thing that they believe it's that integrity that kind of like makes a bridge between those characters. And I think it's the way that Weisler finds his way into empathizing with Draymond because like it, at first he thinks that he's arrogant and um, thinks that he should be surveilled because he makes assumptions about him. But as he watches him, like those assumptions don't, pay off for him and I think he's drawn in by that and if you look at Weissler's arc I think the first moment where he starts to break is when he realizes that the surveillance investigation is all based on like personal vendettas and and jealousy and not on actual betrayal of the state 
Right. It's corrupt in its essence. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think the more time he spends surveilling Draymond, the director has even said that the whole movie is based on this idea of like art being inherently like subversive just in its like beauty and power to to like what's trying to suppress it. There's that line about um, Lenin listening to Beethoven and saying, if I keep listening, I won't finish the revolution. Like, when we first meet Weisler, we see his apartment, and it's, like, completely bare. It feels, like, authoritarian, almost, you know? It's, like... Mm -hmm. uh, Like, out of a catalog or something. Yeah, it's just, it's not, it's not warm. It's, like, very utilitarian. Um, It has no personality. And then you compare Mm -hmm. that to Draymond's apartment that's, like, so lush and beautifully decorated and cozy and, like, makes you feel like you want to be there. And that's one of those things that I was talking about earlier where, like, the film is, like, transmitting information about the characters without any dialogue, just using the visual medium in terms of the set telling you something about each of those characters, like, who they are on the inside. But, yeah, you get the feeling that, like... Weissler has never really surveilled artists like on that close of a level before. And he just kind of like didn't even know that there was this whole alternate like aspect of human experience that he was not really experiencing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe I feel like um, it's kind of like what I said with the integrity thing, although we never see him like we don't know much about his career, I guess. Mm -hmm. But like, I I feel like he just respects him. And then he's like intrigued by him there. There is nothing for him to like, he like gets a Western newspaper illegally. And he's like, this isn't a big enough deal to do anything about right now. But then you know, like, as he observes him, he sees all of his friends and, and all of these people who are like, constantly trying to get him to be like, hey, you need to, you know, be more subversive or go against the state, whatever. And he believes in it. Like you said, he he really believes this stuff. Like there's this weird kind of artistic parallel that's drawn between the characters that I really love that he's like sitting in this basement, Weissler is, um, with all of this listening equipment, and he's got a typewriter, and he is typing out this report in real time. And it feels like he is like a writer, on a certain level, kind of writing the script of Draymond's life. And I think that in it's not exactly art in a way. Well, it is. He, he's like becoming a writer and writing these characters, you know, and their lives. And that brings him into a more human place and out of the institution. And there's definitely that one scene after his friend Yurska commits suicide and his response to finding out about the suicide is to just like play the piano and like express mm. his grief that way. And there's that shot where the camera is kind of like sweeping around Weisler at his keyboard. And I think it's it's drawing like a clear parallel between like the piano keys and the typewriter keys. Mm. Yeah. And, and yeah, I think it, it's making that comparison for sure. 
Weisler literally turns into a writer because in order to cover up for the article about suicides, he has to actually write a play about Lenin. And like, <laughs> right, yeah, it's not good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think the movie also has a lot of like funny understated jabs at like bad cliche art, <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Both through Weisler's like clearly terrible play and just like completely overwrought and cliche retelling of Lennon's life story. Yes, um, it's just like the high notes. And then the uh, <laughs> the director who directs the first version of Draymond's play that we see at the beginning, you know, that's again, just like totally predictable, ordinary, like not very inspiring and then contrasting that with the the reimagined version at the end after the wall comes down and Germany's mm. unified. And you can see like, oh, this is what this play could look like in the hands of a better director. Yeah, it's all symbolic instead of this very literal mm-hmm. version that you see at the beginning. Yeah. And the movie like lives in those contrasts. Yeah. Like it'll set something up and then reframe it in the same kind of way over and over and over. I really think that it's about the creation of Weissler's reports are just like, to me, it's like he's kind of becoming a writer and he's like exploring that empathy for all of those people. And like you said, he's angry about the whole thing being corrupt to begin with. And I think that's kind of where it really starts for him is when he um, buzzes the door so that Draymond can see that um, Hemp is like involved in this entire situation. Yeah. So actually that was one of the questions that I had because I think there's a way to interpret that scene where he's trying to punish Krista Maria, but mm. I th- I think you're right. I think he's actually trying to lay all the secrets bare to show that it's Hemp that's really pulling the strings. I I had a hard time with that too when I watched it. Like, I understood that he wanted him to go there and to see it. But I was like, why does he want that? Because he wants a confrontation between them. He wants them to, like, he wants to push Draymond. But that's not what it was at all. I think it was, like, a really emotional choice. I think it might have even been subconsciously motivated by, like, his disgust with Hemp for being a corrupt official. This guy is, like, really high up in the government and basically wants Draymond's girlfriend, the lead actress of the play... To be like, I, I don't. He, I think he just wants her for sex. He doesn't even want her as like his wife or anything. He just wants like a trophy. Well, he um, just sees everybody around him as objects, you know, right? Because yeah, that's what happens when you're powerful, right? <laughs> yeah, and it corrupts. It's interesting though when Weisler does that. Like we've seen the sexual assault scene in the car, but Weisler hasn't. He doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily know how consensual or not it is like he at that point he knows that hemp started the investigation but he doesn't necessarily know like how exploitative that is maybe he's intuited that he doesn't seem that intuitive about human nature (laughs) no i i think what he was expecting was like a breakup or something because like what does happen is that at the end there they um she's just like hold me and he does Mm-hmm. hold her i just read something like really heartbreaking on weisler's face as he watches that and then is interrupted by the um changeover of the of the shift yeah and then he calls uh, a sex worker immediately after that 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that he doesn't even want sex. I think he just wants that moment of being held and holding someone. Oh, yeah, um, absolutely. Because, you know, when his appointment is over or whatever, he asked her to stay. And she's like, you should have booked more time. (laughs) And he's like, yeah. And you definitely get the... There's, like, so much good subtlety in that scene, like, how awkward he is with the sex worker. It makes it clear Mm -hmm. that, like, this is not his normal thing. Like, he's never done this before. I couldn't tell. Maybe maybe you know this. I don't know. It was... So was that an illegal thing? Or was it, like... Oh, I don't know if prostitution was legal or illegal. Um, She was clearly like, I think that building is for like, it's like a company building, like a government, you know, government people live there. And she was like, don't worry, I'm not going to be late because I'm like going down the hall, you know. (laughs) Um, So there is a Wikipedia page called Prostitution in the German Democratic Republic. There you go. Uh, It was outlawed in 1968 and partially tolerated thereafter. Um, The Stasi used prostitutes. They were called Milka's maidens for gaining information. In the GDR, all parties benefited from prostitution. The rich women, the satisfied suitors, the informed state. So much satisfaction it will hardly ever be more in this industry. That's a quote from Uta Falk. Because she seemed very like like in charge of herself and like and fine with everything. And I was like, huh, I it, like this is kind of a healthy portrayal of a sex worker. And I was like, maybe in the socialist system that they had, like it was all above board, but I guess not. No, after the reunification, prostitution became legal. So okay, okay. So yeah. I guess it was technically illegal, but yeah, it was. Uh, I agree. It felt like a very healthy depiction of um, sex work. But clearly, like a slide for him away from following the rules, because mm-hmm. if he's breaking the rules to get her, and then also like he doesn't even want the thing that he's getting, he wants that intimacy that he was peeking in on. Yeah, where Draymond was able to forgive her and be there for her, without maybe not totally understanding what she went through, but I think intuiting that like it was all more traumatic and less consensual than he might have been thinking. Yeah, exactly. It was like clearly a traumatic experience for her and not something that she enjoyed at all. No, I mean, that scene is terrible. I don't know if you want to talk about it. Um, Like it's not, it's terrible to watch. It's not terribly done. I think it's really well done. I mean, yeah, trigger warning. You might not want to watch it if you've experienced something like that in your whole life. Yeah, it is a horrifying depiction of I think like power and consent dynamics and sex I mean it's clearly a sexual assault he even gives her a chance to say no but clearly she can't actually say no you know and it's like oh it's so it's so slimy and it's such a good her body language because is yeah like disturbing Mm mm-hmm and she she doesn't say no and so like for him he's like I'm good to go it's horrible. And they don't actually show like the actual rape, but they like get all the way up to the moment of and it's mm-hmm. um, and you're just like, oh, terrible. It's like so disgusting. Even like the mm-hmm. I don't know. I wonder how how self-aware hemp the the government official is. Right. Because she clearly doesn't want to get in the car. 
And then once he makes her get in the car, she clearly is like not, you know, her body language is such that she's not into it all. She's basically like a rag doll and like kind of like trying to get a, she's like trying to move her face away from him at the same time Mm -hmm. that he's like trying to get in her space. And then at the end of the movie, when, when he and Draymond are talking um, and he says, you know, like everyone knew that you couldn't give Christina what she really needed. And it's like, do you fucking believe that? Are you that delusional? <laughs> or yeah. or are you just saying that to try and get at him? Yeah, I think it's more that second thing. But it's also like the rules in toxic masculinity only exist, you know, like the rules of society only exist as like a measurement of how much can you break those rules and how much can you use those rules against other people? Like that's the measurement of who you are as a man. Mm -hmm. Like what rules just don't apply to you. And then what, what are those same rules that you can turn around and use against other people to control them? And so that's like his entire character to me. And Draymond's response to that is so good. He's like, I just can't believe we ever lived in a world where you were in charge of anything. Yeah. And then just walks away. (laughs) There's like so much of this movie that I feel like I relate to more now in like the age of Trump and just the like blatant in your face open corruption. Mm -hmm. The way that they like force people to say things that go against your own perception it's what we're living through right now. Like when the first time that the Stasi go into Draymond's apartment and they like rip everything apart looking for the typewriter and can't find it. And as the guy's leaving, he says, in the unlikely event the damage has occurred, you may claim compensation. And Draymond just says, I'm sure everything's in perfect order. Because he's like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> like as the the like pillow feathers or whatever are still settling on the floor. <laughs> yeah, everything's been slashed, literally. Yeah. That like joke scene in the cafeteria where the minister of culture, Grubler, he starts off like making him think that it's okay to finish telling the joke and is laughing with him. And then he gets super serious and asks him for his name and rank and is you know, scaring him and threatening to destroy his career. And then he like laughs again and tells his own subversive joke. And the guy is clearly like just terrified and has no idea what's going on. Mm -hmm. Like, is he actually in trouble or is he not in trouble? And, and Grubler's clearly like fucking getting off on this power trip. And then of course this guy is the, uh, in the mail room at the end with Feisler. Oh, I don't, really? I don't know if you noticed I, that. Yeah, so the guy... No. So the guy who um, is listening to the radio and tells Weisler that the wall has come down. Oh. That is okay. the guy from the lunchroom who told the joke, which I think is a hilarious joke. That's uh, that's very cool. Yeah, so that's another one of those like very subtle um, things where it's like, okay, we actually find out what happened to that guy and he did get fucked. Yeah. Cause all they're doing in that basement is like steaming open letters. They're not even reading them. They're just opening them for someone else to go through and like document. Mm-hmm. So that's like the lowest work that you can be doing. It takes no brain power. I, I really, really hope that one day <laughs> we can be in the, the place where Draymond is and say like, I can't believe the men like you were once in charge of our country. Um, yeah. Like, we're obviously not there yet. Anyway, let's not turn this into a rant about Trump podcast, but it is like, I mean, it's hard not to watch this movie and feel those comparisons. 
Yeah. I think um, that whole thing speaks to like this other theme of acting. That's a really important part of the movie through the character of uh, Krista, who's, the, you know, the woman that Hemph is uh, after. It just made me think the whole time that I was watching it, how all of the characters are actually actors in terms of like, you have to behave differently than you actually feel like because you're always under surveillance. So you have to like put on the performance of being, you know, loyal or whatever so that you can have whatever little bit of freedom that you can have. And then like the only authenticity that like Krista has is with Draymond, but like even in that car scene, like whatever, she has to, you know, get into the car because to not get into the car is like to kill herself, you know, Mm -hmm. and to not, allow this assault is to kill herself and it's um and so like the whole thing is is just about acting there's the whole scene with draymond and his friends after the suicide where um they basically like put on a play in case he's under surveillance to you know they talk to somebody who's going to go over to the west in his car and say that he's going to be smuggling someone across the border And the idea is that they're like setting a trap. So like if that car, which never gets pulled over, does get pulled over and inspected, then they'll know that he's under surveillance. Mm -hmm. But what they don't understand is that the guy who is surveilling them has like fallen in love with the people who he's surveilling. Um, And so he allows it to happen. At that point, I feel like even Weisler has started to put on an act with his superiors. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's interesting too, kind of like stepping back, the the choices that they made about the actors acting in the movie. The guy who plays Weisler, who is Ulrich Muhi. I don't know what to do with umlauts, so I apologize if I mess that up. <laughs> um, his face is very stoic the whole time. I think... Weisler's character arc really comes through the choices that he makes, not Mm. as much his facial expressions. Um, Mm -hmm. I think that's an interesting choice in a couple ways. Um, Like, the only time we see him be really expressive with his face is when he's reading Brecht, which, again, kind of speaks to that theme of, of like, the the transformative power of art. Like, he doesn't even crack a smile or anything at the end when he reads the dedication to him in Draymond's novel. Um, right. I get, And I guess we see him crying when Draymond is playing Beethoven on the piano. In the end, like, his stoic face ends up being, like, his tool for survival, right? Because he has to lie to his boss's face. You know, he's, like, in the Stasi prison, and he has to lie about what he's doing. And he just, he manages to keep his facial expression so still the whole time, because that's just, like, how he lives. That's, like, how he copes with living in this environment. Mm -hmm. I, like, I kind of wonder if he is that detached because of his job, like, if it's that something that his job did to him. Or if he just is so good at his job and rose up through the ranks because that is what he was already like. Yeah, it's hard to know. Clearly, the movie like tells you over and over again, everybody hates the Stasi. Mm-hmm. So like, how much does he hate himself and how much does he have to numb himself against that? Yeah. And, and that 
way that he becomes an actor in front of his boss and mirrors that scene that he has with Krista in the bar. Mm -hmm. Like the boss is literally the audience through the window. The way I read it, like Krista recognizes him and understands that they are like putting on a play, but doesn't understand the degree to which he's trying to save her. Yeah, the way he does that slow reveal of his face Mm -hmm. by like, being turned the opposite way and then like slowly turning it around so she can like not give away the fact that she recognizes him he like calls back to the the conversation they had in the bar when he says remember your audience and what he's trying to say right is i'm on your side like Mm -hmm. do what i'm saying and trust me i'll go move the typewriter tell them where the typewriter is and I'll go move it before they can get to it. But he like, he can't communicate all of that. There's like a limitation. Right. And so of course she ends up thinking that she's betrayed Draymond and killing herself. Um, Yeah. That scene is so fucking good. All of it. It's It's really good. And like even the scene in the bar is so good even before you know Mm-hmm. what it's setting up later. Yeah, in that scene, he's being really authentic with her and like trying to tell her something and like really inserting himself into this story that he's gotten mixed up in. Mm-hmm. And then later, he's the one who's not being authentic. You know, they send her off. They feel like she's totally equipped for this. They're like, just go back to Draymond and be an actress. And it's like, <laughs> she can't because he's the one person that she's, real with right that when that moment comes and they're gonna tear up the floor she can't take it it destroys her yeah i think it's really like the climax of the movie emotionally and then everything after that is like you know declining action that really like gives you some satisfaction yeah he sticks it to hemp honestly like everything that happens after christina's death almost feels like an epilogue yeah yeah totally the entire state is like this act right? That everybody is just kind of propping up through their performance. Um, and, and the only reason it exists is to like, for the people who are in the apparatus to like get more power, it doesn't benefit the people like the people live in this state of like irony. Mm-hmm. And they're all like forced to be these actors. And like, if you're ever authentic, if you're ever real, it will kill you the way that it kills her. It reminded me of that thing that we talked about in the Measures of Truth podcast that I brought up about living in Eastern Europe, this really good essay called The Power of the Powerless by Vaclav Havel that's like all about living underneath the regime and how all of these grocery store owners are required by the government to put up this sign that says like, workers of the world unite the Marxist slogan. Mm -hmm. They don't do it because they're like hoping the workers of the world will unite because that would be really bad for them. Yeah. Um, You know, the people who see the sign don't think that that's going to happen. And they know that the government doesn't want it to happen, but everybody pretends like that's what the government wants. And they pretend like that is what happened so that they can not be killed and be allowed to exist at all. And it's just like this ironic, (laughs) oppressive thing where nobody lives in the truth and everything is cynical and it's all like, it's very dark. Yeah, it's it's interesting now that you bring that up, like thinking about the message of the movie, right? Because on like one level, the movie is truly like dark and sad and horrible. But 
ultimately, I think because of the epilogue, the tone of the movie, it ends on a lighter note and a more optimistic note. It's just interesting because the thing that turns everything around, that like brings the optimistic epilogue is completely outside of the internal plot of the movie, right? Like, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the East German Republic has nothing to do with our, you know, our Stasi spy and the artist. Right. It's, like, completely external to them. Even though I think the the movie speaks really powerfully and effectively to a lot of themes and, like, the internal emotion and like experiences of all of the characters it kind of speaks really ineffectively um to like the broader ideas of like optimism versus cynicism and like fighting against these systems like if anything the movie is like very cynical about fighting against these systems and if that's going to triumph it's going to be something bigger and outside of you like what you do doesn't matter I agree with that. I th- I think the movie doesn't have much hope or offer much hope in those terms. And it's, you know, a, a lot like what that essay is about is, uh, is about complicity of the people who are under the system, not just the people like Hemp who are using the system, you know, to their own advantage, or even people who are true believers like Weisler, but like, just the like the person who lives right across the hallway from Draymond, the Frau Meineke. Yeah, who like sees the the secret police go in there and bug the place and never says anything to him, mm-hmm. um, even though she cares about him. Oh, and then they have that amazing interaction where like she ties his tie. It's and, so good, and he's right? like, "It's our little secret," and she's just like, Ugh. so <laughs> panicked. <laughs> yeah, she's like doing everything she can not to say because mm-hmm. she wants to to do it, and so like if she did say. It would be terrible for her, right? She yeah. would go to prison. She would have every, you know, her, there was somebody in college that he knew exactly what to say to her to get her to cooperate. Mm-hmm. And so if she did do the right thing and say, you know, say the truth and be authentic, it would have destroyed her. It would have destroyed other people. So instead, she's complicit with this system that is hurting everybody and by means of complicity like that in a hundred ways from a hundred little people all over the place, that's how the system exists. Yeah. You know, and that's how these things are able to exist. They're actually like really fragile in a way, but you know, they're so powerful versus one individual, but it's, you know, it would have to take a cooperative effort of everybody insisting on living in the truth in order to defeat these things. And the movie doesn't deal with that in any meaningful way. But that's like, that's why this like post-truth stuff is so important to fight against because this is the result, you know, after the fact. When you're not living in a world of truth anymore, you're living in a world where any individual can be shut away and vanished. Yeah. You know, and, and everybody has no choice but to go along with it. Because you don't want that to happen to you. Yeah, the one like truly authentic person that we see is that little kid, mm. which is like <laughs> one of my favorite scenes, which is super dark, but also like comes across as like very comedic in the moment. Yeah. He's just like playing with his ball and he asks, you know, Weisler, like, are you with the Stasi? And Weisler's like, well, what what do you think the Stasi are? And he's like, they're bad men who put people in jail. That's what my dad says. And he's like, who's your 
and he like make again like makes the choice he's like you know what i don't even want to fucking know (laughs) (laughs) he's choosing ignorance in the same way that krista maria is choosing ignorance later on when she doesn't want to know what they're working on because she knows that it it is putting her at risk and the only reason right. why she finds out about the typewriter is because um, she like accidentally comes home at the wrong moment. Yeah. And she doesn't even ask about it. Mm-hmm. She just like pretends like it's not happening. Yeah. It really grapples with all of this stuff. But like you said, it's very focused on these individual people and not on like the system or like any kind of resistance. Yeah. But I think that's okay because like the story that it tells is really amazing and powerful. So I don't know if you noticed this, but at one point when Draymond is putting away the typewriter, he like smudges the ink Mm. and gets Mm -hmm. the, the red fingerprints, which of course end up being the tell for him figuring out that Weissler hid the typewriter um, because he sees the red smudged fingerprint on the report at the end. And he's like, whoa, what? It is weird that like he just goes up there and he's like, who's this guy? And they're like, here he is. You want his address? And I'm like, yeah, that seems dangerous. Like I'm all about reconciliation and truth telling after, you know, war crimes. But like giving people like the individual names and addresses of, of like Stasi informants seems bad. Yeah, and I wasn't sure what he was going to do with that information. But clearly, like he knew that, you know, he had been saved by this man. But he what do you think about the choice that he makes? He he actively makes a choice not to get involved in his life. Yeah. Um, Um, I don't know what to make of that. Well, so I did think it was cool that they have him spying on the spy that had spied on him previously. Again, kind of like turning the tables. Yeah, I don't know. I mean... I think they made the right choice, mostly just because at that point the movie was already two hours long. And how do you portray that effectively? Like, what what does that interaction even look like? Having him choose not to get involved is the easier choice in terms of, like, writing and filmmaking. Mm -hmm. You know, he, like, basically sends his document out into the world that, like, acknowledges. yeah you know, this thing, and and he sees the document the way that Draymond saw it. And so it's like an inversion and a mirroring, you know, once again. Yeah, Yeah. it's like, I know that you know that I know that you know. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Except it's all true. It's it's not an act anymore. Like, we're just all telling the truth now. Yeah. (laughs) And of course, the title of the book is the title of the the fake piece of music. Um, And we'll, like, reel within the story, but not real in the real world um, that Mm -hmm. Yurska, his director friend, gave to him at the party when he was reading the Brecht book that the guy stole later. So there's these, like, symbols of art that keep getting passed around. So um, I have a question for you about the ending. You know, Lonnie always says that, like, what gives a story meaning is how it ends. And this movie ends on, like, a super cheesy pun. Oh, <laughs> right. Because the the um the clerk in the bookstore asks him if he wants it gift wrapped, and he just says, "No, it's for me," and he does not even crack a smile. It's get it's like his classic deadpan, but it like is the freeze frame, <laughs> and it just seems weird to me that like a movie this dark basically ends on a dad joke, <laughs> but also it somehow works. I don't know. 
Yeah, it made me smile. Um, and it definitely left me feeling good as the credits started to roll. Uh-huh. So maybe that was the whole, like, you want them, you want them to leave the theater happy. Right. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was wondering, like, the book itself, I assumed, and I don't think there's any way to know the answer to this question, um, was the story of what he read. Like, I felt like it was his story. Oh, you think like, it was basically, like, the plot of the movie, but, like... Yeah, it was the movie that we just watched, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's the, like, that's the feeling that I have. That we just watched the movie adaptation of the in-universe book, basically. Ooh, I like and that. Then, and so that was the feeling that I had when he said that. Like, it was for me. So, I don't know. To me, like, even though this is a story about, like, oppression and... um you know, fascism and all of this stuff. What it's really about is like storytelling and writing and which is really filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And like, there's all this meta stuff about people writing and acting and and all of this stuff. And so that's what I felt like at the end. It was like the story folding in on itself in a way that kind of sent us back out into the world feeling like it was all tied up in itself. So what you just said is making me think more about some of the critiques of the movie um, for basically being, like, too optimistic and cheery, like, given the reality of, of what the Stasi actually were and how oppressive they were to the, the population. Mm-hmm. And that, like, <laughs> even though this story is not true and even though the collapse of the authoritarian regime had nothing to do with the actions of the characters in the actual story... It is kind of inspirational in a way, right? Like it is, you know, if you if you get disillusioned with the system that you're supporting, you can try and fight back in whatever small way you can, right? And that's like the title of the book, right? It's the Sonata for a Good Man. It's the movie is kind of trying to ask like what makes a good man? And like mm. although I think in German, I don't know how much Mensch well, and in English, too, right? Like, man can be somewhat mm-hmm. gender neutral. Um, supposedly. Supposedly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, what makes a good person? Right. Uh, is it insulting to the people who suffered under the Stasi to try and use that historical backdrop as a way to inspire people to try and fight back against current oppressive systems and to, like, be the best person that they can be within the confines of that system, you know? Yeah. And it's like, you never know. I think what the the story is telling us is that you never know how things are going to turn out, right? Like, all you can do is try and make the best decisions you can in the moment to try and protect yourself and the people around you, like, given this oppressive state. Yeah, it's also kind of like, I don't, like, a, almost an apologetic for art Mm -hmm. you know for like its own sake and saying like it is important like when you see the play at the beginning almost nobody is there and the people who are there are there cynically like they're spying yeah on (laughs) all the people (laughs) and it's that like you know it's not about the art you know when you're in these kind of systems as an artist it feels like no one is listening and that nothing you do matters, and that your resistance is meaningless. But then at the end, when he goes into the West, that theater is packed. Yeah. And 
the book is a bestseller and the truth matters and the truth lives in the art. And like they said, you know, with that song, when you hear it, then you become human. And and it's the art that brings Weisler around, both him becoming an artist by trying to write a better ending for these people and the art that he is fighting for in what Draymond does. That is what being human is. Part of it is is producing art. And um, the degree of resistance that you can do with art is limited, but is essential. Yeah. If that's true or not, I don't, but that's what the movie is saying. It's probably more meaningful if you like, I don't know, resist with guns if you have to or something. Yeah. Whatever. Yeah. (laughs) Economics and diplomacy, you know, whatever. I don't know. I'm trying to think if there are like other like favorite moments that we haven't really touched on. I love when they're, they're sitting down to the lunch scene and Grubitz wants to, uh, I think I call, I've been calling him Grubler, but Grubitz is his name, wants Weisler uh, to sit in like the boss section and Weisler sits down and like the, the plebe section and just says socialism must start somewhere. Right. <laughs> yeah. And he means it. Yeah, no, he totally does. <laughs> He's not doing it to fuck with his friend. It's really good. Yeah. That's one of those scenes that really shows the contrast between them. And then the whole thing goes sideways Mm -hmm. so badly, but so good. Yeah. There's not a wasted second in the movie. It's like you said, it's like clockwork. Yeah. In the very beginning when they're at the play and like deciding whether or not to open up the file on Draymond or not. And there's the conversation between Grublitz and Weisler when Weisler is suspicious and Grublitz is like, no, he's totally clean. And then, a, you know, a few minutes later, Grublitz is talking with Hemp and he's like, oh, yes, like, I definitely thought that we should have him under surveillance. <laughs> and that, like, that tells you everything you need to know about Grublitz. Like, he is has no integrity, like, no principles. And he's dumb. Like, yeah, he's not and, good at And this. he's bad at his yeah. job. <laughs> yeah, there's... There's a really good scene um, with speaking of people who are good at their job with the typewriter guy. Too, oh, my God. Cool. Yes, that totally reminded me like he belonged in some kind of like CSI show. He was like, <laughs> so perfect. <laughs> this might seem unrelated, but like I just recently had to um, buy some allergy medicine, like the strong stuff and um, give my ID. So there's a record out there of like which allergy medicine I buy that's registered with the government. Oh, because it's the stuff so that, that you can use to make meth. Meth, yeah, um, which is a problem in, in the state that I live in. So, like, this guy knew every typewriter that every writer uses because everything is, you know, the state owns every typewriter seller and knows all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, it's all registered. And I'm sure the they, like, way. you know, get copies of their original manuscripts to make sure that that's what they're actually using. Exactly. Yeah, it's just, like, crazy. The amount... You see, like, these long hallways full of records and all this stuff that they're working with. Like, just the sheer amount of information that they have on everybody is, like, staggering. Mm-hmm. For what? You know, to, like, maintain this thing that is, like, a lie and doesn't do the thing that government is supposed to do. Ultimately, everything that goes wrong in the story goes back to Hemph. Even though he's like a very minor character that we only see a few times, like he's the one that's pulling all of the strings and his motivations are the ones that like set everything in motion and that ultimately turn it into a situation where like they can't win. He wants... Krista Maria, and if he can't have her, he will destroy her. 
and mm. he's so mm-hmm. powerful that there's nothing that they can do. Like, Draymond is an optimist, right? And he's the one who encourages Krista Maria not to give in, uh, to just say no. And he's completely wrong and naive. <laughs> but he yeah. doesn't suffer any of the consequences, right? Because, you know, because it's the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And as the woman, she is the ultimate object for ownership, not him. Yeah, it's just... <laughs> I feel like there's a feminist analysis in there somewhere where it's like, you have these, like, clueless, privileged men who, like, don't fully understand how the system is operating on people who have less privilege than them in the system. And he's like, of course you don't have to go have sex with that guy. Like, you can just say no, and you'll obviously still be able to work as an actress. (laughs) And it's completely wrong. On the one hand, he's encouraging her to stand up for herself and, like, take back her bodily autonomy and not subject herself to the sexual trauma but also he the advice that he gives her which is on some level selfish right because he begs her not to go he says mm. just do this one thing for me don't go see him tonight ultimately that is the thing that gets her taken up by state security and killed because she doesn't have the power to say no given the oppressive system if i have one like actual criticism of this movie, I feel like, um, like this movie is so good and I love it, but it, I think it's like clearly written by a man, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I don't think it like really grapples with the fact that like women suffer most under the system because the patriarchy sees them as objects, and I don't know if Draymond fully grapples, like the character fully grapples with the fact that like he indirectly caused her death in that way and like ultimately everything is all of him's fault obviously but like he his naivete and optimism like went a long way towards putting her in danger he kind of like privileged his feelings over her instincts and sense of self-survival and like used her love for him to get her to not do this thing I question how much of his motivation and his begging her not to go back to Hemp had to do with, like, his sense of masculinity and ownership over her and their relationship versus his actual concern for her well-being and her victimization and sexual trauma. Or not even his, yeah, his masculinity and even, like, his emotions. Yeah, you know, like, he doesn't want, he's in love with her and he doesn't want to think about her being with someone else and being sexually traumatized, but it's not, like, actually about her experience of the sexual trauma. Yeah, it's not about her at all. Yeah. Even Weissman is complicit in that because she goes and then he, like, convinces her. Yeah. We're oh, so we're so when I say Weissman, yeah. We're so bad German at German names. names. We're just like <laughs> But he yeah, he convinces her to like well, I don't know if he convinces her, but he's he says enough of the right things yeah. to like send her back. And he knows he knows exactly what that means. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, I hadn't even thought about it that way. But yeah, he should know better. Totally. Yeah. He's been on the inside of everything. And you're talking about like naivete because of privilege i think that is totally draymond's thing like it's easy for him to believe that the system works on a certain level you know because it's working for him he takes some privileges you know with this he reads a lot of western books and western newspapers 
he never has any serious friction with the system. And so it's easy for him to believe that the system is just fine as long as you keep your nose clean. Mm -hmm. And those people out there who are in jail probably did something that they shouldn't have done. But, you know, for Weisler, it's different. Like he knows exactly how all this works. And for him to send her back is completely about the feelings that he's feeling and has nothing to do with like keeping those people safe. Yeah, and how he's like invested in their love story and their relationship from a very masculine point of view. Uh, so have you recommended this movie to other people? Like, how has that gone? You know, let's watch a German movie in German with subtitles. It's about, uh, oppression. Yeah, this is not a movie that I recommend to other people very much. I would want to say, I think I've watched it with several ex-boyfriends. Well, boyfriends at the time, now exes or slash current husbands. Um, <laughs> which technically your husband is your ex-boyfriend, right? Anyway, um, oh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> this isn't one that I kind of like casually recommend to friends. It's like, let's have a, a cinematic experience tonight. Um, and I think for the most part, everyone has enjoyed it, even if they don't necessarily love it. But yeah, you know, dark foreign films are not quite the type of thing that you just kind of get people to watch on a whim no it's great i would highly recommend it to people like and it's so easy to watch right now if you live in the united states like yeah i know definitely watch it for once in our show's career we uh <laughs> we picked something that's actually streaming on a on a easy platform and because it's been such a long time since the last time that we did a show uh, we do have a couple of haikus this time around for people who left us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much for doing that and taking the time to do that. We appreciate it. Uh, for Susan, you're a fan like us. Locke, Buffy, Chidi, Lyra. So many stories. And for Sarah, storms broke over us. We fought all brokenhearted. Thanks again so much uh, to both of you for leaving us reviews on Apple Podcasts. And if you would like a personalized haiku, uh, just go ahead and do the same. Okay, so I guess we're done for today. Uh, join us next month for an episode on the Mexican. The Mexican, which is, uh, which is not about a person. Like, that is not an objectification of a person it is about an object called the mexican it's a, a 2001 movie that i've watched many times i really love that movie um but it's like a, a non-romantic non-comedy weird indie movie with julia roberts and brad pitt and i feel like i have to inoculate people against the expectation of romantic comedy because of how badly it's gone in the past for me <laughs> of people watching this movie. So this is one that you have experience recommending to people and having them bounce off of it. Oh, uh, it's like, yeah. Talk about exes like this, this movie. <laughs> oh my God. It's like a train wreck of, yeah. Of bad experiences with uh, romantic partners. Okay. Well, hopefully uh, <laughs> uh, we can, uh, never mind. That was going to go in a weird direction. <laughs> <laughs> We can't reverse that. Yeah, it's no. Not, it's um, not reversible. I was like, uh, weird indie movie is pretty much 
guaranteed to be something that I'll like. So uh, hopefully you'll have a better experience. Even if I'm not a romantic partner, we can like redeem that somehow. <laughs> yeah, I look forward to to the discussion about it. It has a really great cast and it's a offbeat kind of funny movie. There's a there's a weird amount of dead people in it and like some uh, criminal misadventures and stuff like that you know like incompetent crooks doing small time stuff and getting themselves mixed up with people who they should not be mixed up with and and so we don't know exactly when that episode will be coming out because uh we're going to be recording um many many episodes for measures of truth uh in the next few weeks and months um so i would say probably at least one to two month hiatus Mm -hmm. Um, we'll just we're gonna kind of get to it when we can get to it Um, but we have to prioritize uh, those tv episodes uh, so we can get those out on the regular schedule for measures of truth if you like what we do don't forget to rate and review the show on apple Podcasts. that is the best way for new listeners to find our show I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. I'm Alan. You can follow the show on Twitter at HGStoryCast and visit our website at HGStoryCast.com. And if you'd like to leave us feedback, you can visit HGStoryCast.com slash contact or send an email to contact at HallowedGroundMedia.com. Hallowed Ground Storycast is a Hallowed Ground media production and is produced under a Creative Commons non-commercial share alike license.